Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic Bee Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today, I will be speaking to the legendary Joel Saladin in regards to his latest book, Folks, This Ain't Normal. And let me tell you something. This is one book I just loved reading <laughs> the front cover to the end. It was very amusing, especially since I grew up on a farm and many of the agricultural methods that he practices I can relate to because he really does go back to basics. But in regards to the topic today, it's basically about our food and how it's produced, of course. Thanks to decades of clever mass marketing campaigns, the average person has become completely disconnected with how our food is grown and also what real food should look like. With the agrochemical companies chiming away that there is going to be a food shortage if we don't produce more food and decrease the world population in order for everyone to survive, the reality is most people do not have a clue as to how their food is produced, where it is grown, or how it is grown. Processed foods initially created with the intention to save time are simply not a healthy choice. Some of these processed, ready-to-quote-heat-and-serve products made with, quote, real chicken are breaded, seasoned, and disguised in all sorts of geometrical shapes so that children will be encouraged to eat them. Meanwhile, the average child who primarily consumes this type of food has no idea what a chicken looks like, sounds like, or the fact that chickens are smart, loving beings. And let me tell you, it's up to the parents to make better choices. It's up to the parents to teach their children about making better choices. And the thing is is that we have just become this society where we just are like robots. And you can observe this in supermarkets when people go shopping. They just simply go down the aisle. They just reach for something that seems to fit what they're looking for, chuck it in, don't even read the label, don't really pay much attention to it. And that's really disturbing. It's important that people that actually grow the food and are working to educate others about what they really need to know about food are out there teaching people the things that they need to know. And that's one of the things that I really love about Joel Saladin. He is an organic farmer from Virginia, and he talks about not only the problems that he sees as an organic farmer, but also as a consumer of organic foods. So I would like to welcome to the show Joel Saladin. Good afternoon, Joel. Hi, June. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Great to have you. I must say, I really, really enjoyed reading this book. And I read a lot of books. A lot of people don't realize that every author that I interview, I do make it a point to read the books because it's very important to me to understand 
what people are writing about and the fact that they take so much time out of their lives and away from their families to put something down on paper for others to read and enjoy. And there were so many different things about your book. I mean, it's not only educational, but you really touch upon so many different issues. I don't know if we're going to have the time to cover everything, but I certainly hope to cover as much as I can in today's show. Tell us, if you could be so kind as to tell us about your farm, Polyface Farm, and why are you on the farm? How come you didn't opt to just go out there, hit corporate America, and, you know, go away from farm life? <laughs> well, like me. Um, I, I, I just always loved the farm. Um, I guess my, my sense, uh, as a, even going back as far as I can remember, was that I just enjoyed being surrounded by abundance, by uh, by life, by biology, and just the the um, the, the sense of, of being nested, of being nestled, nestled in an abundant womb. Um, it, it, there's there's just something about it, and and I just I just fell in love with the farm. I fell in love with the animals. I fell in love with soil, earthworms, everything. And um, there's just there's just not much about it I don't like. Now, it's funny. I grew up on a farm. I went away from the farm, and what am I doing? I'm going right back to where I started. And I still, you know, I compost. I grow as much as I humanly can. I do everything that basically I was taught in the farm, uh, with the exception of having my own animals and a tractor and, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. I often joke to my friends, and I say, when they say, oh, you know, what was it like growing up? And I tell them, E-I-E-I-O, anything yeah. to do with farming, that was, that was my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and and even people who aren't actively growing something, or you know, maybe they're in the middle of a asphalt jungle or something, and, and it's very difficult to grow something. Uh, you know, you have to understand that we're that we all, the way we eat and the way we spend our money, um, has a big effect on how food is grown. You know, the the what the way our food system is uh, is a is a sum total of lots of you know billions and billions of little individual decisions of well I'm going to eat this instead of that I'm going to buy this instead of that and you add all those decisions up and uh, what we see right now in our culture is the manifestation of all those of all those decisions that have been made over a few decades. Oh, of course, and many people that have been on this show have talked about the term the conscious consumer. And basically that lends itself exactly to what you're saying, where when people make a choice to buy something, it doesn't matter what it is, whether they're spending a penny or they're spending $100, whatever they choose to spend that money on is in support of a particular food, a particular manufacturer, and, of course, the farmers that produce the ingredients. So everything basically does tie right back to the origin of that product. And that's something that people are starting to become more aware of. Well, you're right, and uh, that's why that's why our our uh, mantra here at Polyface is uh, healing the planet one bite at a time. It really is a conscious act. And I think that is starting to also rub off on the kids because the kids, I've observed when I was teaching culinary arts to some of the work that I do with the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and some of the other places that I volunteer for, when the kids get involved, they have a phenomenal way of reinforcing it with the parents. 
It's like when I teach composting with the kids, I have the kids get their hands in there. I have them name the, the uh, worms, and they're fascinated. They're basically in heaven. And then they nag the parents. They'll say, you know, Mom, Dad, we need to compost that because they take the responsibility to do what they feel is right because they understand and they totally get it. And I think that the more the parents educate the children about what they should be eating and why, that really is a big, a big component to the success of a healthier future. Well, yeah. Well, actually, you know, kids, kids actually get it pretty fast. I mean, you know, yeah. parents are in the fast lane and they're, they're, uh, got other things on their mind, but, um, but, you know, whether or not a, a chicken is happy or whether or not um, the earthworms are proliferating, um, it really resonates with kids, and, and uh, they, <laughs> they get it pretty, pretty fast. So, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I mean, here at the farm we actually, we actually encourage customers to come out. they got little children and uh, watch the processing, uh, you know, be involved with the, the processing of the chickens and um you know they get they get to see it participate in it and uh i i think that in our culture we really have a, a crisis of participation um you know we talk about lots of crises from energy to economics to uh pathogenicity and and obesity and health problems but uh really what what we have is an incredible is a profound uh, a crisis of participation i think in the visceral responsibilities that used to um you know, that used to occupy people's time and investment. I think it's interesting that the kids are still disconnected. I remember when my brother and I first moved up on the farm in uh, upstate New York in the Catskills, and I was rather shocked to find out that there were a number of kids that were born in the country that had never seen a cow up close and personal, gone into a hen house to retrieve chicken eggs, or things like that. I was really surprised. So this isn't something that kind of sprung up overnight. This has been going on for a very long time. Yes. Yes, it, it well, it, it has been. I mean, it's it's been going on. Um, it, it has accelerated for sure mm. in, in recent uh, times. I mean, we're you know we're the first we're the first uh, civilization in history that has actually had the um, may I say luxury I mean many people would say luxury um, where we've actually had the freedom or the opportunity to actually be this um, you know this disconnected or this free if you will from from the things that bound people together in their homes and their communities uh, from seasonal eating to food preservation to um, you know to artisanal you know uh, Making leather and and all the things that people did in in villages and communities and, and had a part of today, uh, the average person is extricated ex, extricated from that, and um, and the average American knows way more or or is even more impassioned, I should say, about knowing the latest uh, belly button piercing and Hollywood celebrity culture than what's going to become flesh of their flesh and bone of their bones at six o'clock. It's very true, and I think that's because of the fact that we have adopted this whole way of thinking that uh, we don't need to pay attention to our food because we need something that's fast, that's quick, that gets the job done, just like with everything else. And there was a big movement throughout the 60s and 70s to save time so that you would have more leisure time. 
And the bottom line is is that the more disconnected we became from our food and the source of the food, rather, the more we began to have different issues with our food. And it's just interesting. Today, you can buy chicken that is boneless, that is skinless. You don't know anything about the chicken, and basically it's heat and serve. And the thing is is that when you are that disconnected, when you don't see a bone, when you don't see the blood, when you you don't see anything associated with that chicken, it really helps to subconsciously just completely disconnect you from what it is that you are eating. And it's amazing how many people, when I did teach culinary arts, how many people would say, oh, I don't want to touch the chicken breast, and, you know, I don't want to cut it up, I don't want to do that. And I often will say that people are so willing to, there's this expression, people always want to date the doctor but not the butcher. It's interesting that in this day and age, the doctors are basically, the medical world is a whole different world than it used to be, but... I would wonder why people wouldn't want to know about the truth about where their food comes from. And it's good to see that more people are starting to change and come around and and demand, okay, well, how is this produced? They want to know some of the local farmers in their area or even other farmers in other parts of the country that are doing things differently, that are taking the time to go back to basics, as you do on Polyface Farm. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, you're, you're well said, and and um, I, I think that the the point that you made about leisure or other things being more important, you know, we have we have now for at least two generations uh, kind of stereotyped anything that's well, broadly speaking, anything that's blue collar, but certainly anything that smacks of agrarianism as being somehow backwards, Neanderthal, barbaric you know, back to the Stone Age of our country, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and it really speaks to, I, I think it's a profound uh, um, commentary on how our culture has now begun to view pleasure. Um, uh, you know, what can, what can be more pleasurable than a, a tomato plant, even if it's on your patio um, in, a, in a pot, a, a, a tomato plant laden with uh, with tomatoes that you can pick and eat that actually spurt with juice and flavor, and they're not like biting into some you know flavorless cardboard. Mm. Well, and, you see, and, and, people... and so so you know you you begin to look at, uh, at just how do people derive pleasure, and what's happened is that the the sensual uh, uh, pleasure the what what uh, gives us pleasure through the senses um, that used to be extremely visceral, used to be very earthy, if you will, physical. Uh, now pleasure is all fantasy, cerebral, academic, and and it and it comes from somewhere out there rather than welling up within from from inside our our lifestyles, our homes, uh, where we live, and and. Um, that, that you know, that's a that's a powerful change in our culture. I think. Well, I, I agree. I think that a lot of these so-called pleasures are completely fabricated, purposely to keep us distracted. Because the thing is, is that if you're preoccupied with what's going on with American Idol, what are you going to care if one particular state makes uh, selling raw milk illegal? 
what's it to you? Especially right. if you're buying all your food processed, you don't know the farms, don't know a thing about farming. As far as you're concerned, a uh, cow's job is to produce milk and your occasional hamburger or steak, and who cares about anything else? The bottom line is is that with the way that things have developed, uh, with that whole need for increased leisure time, I think that was very interesting how it was coined because we never really achieved that. I think what had happened was we just started taking the additional time that we had and putting it to use for other things that really have no substance and are not enriching and are not doing really much of anything for our lives. And I'm not saying that it's bad to watch well, I'm not going to say it's good to watch TV, but I'm not saying that it's bad not to have leisure time and to do things that make you happy. But what I am saying is that when you are that disconnected, then you have some problems. And I think that is one of the blessings with the economy tanking. Because what I've observed, and not just in one small section of the country or another, but across the board, you see people that because of financial need have begun growing their own food again, and basically the families are working together, they're harvesting the food, they're cooking together, they're sitting down together and eating. Instead of going out, one person eating at this hour, another person eating whenever you know they get around to it, they're eating together as a family. They're beginning to talk again. They're beginning to take interest in what is going on in each other's lives. And I think that is something to really... Um, think about because it's very important and it's good that it happened because more people are starting to wake up and they're starting to say you know something it's better if I just produce my own stuff it's healthier it's more economic and on top of that I know what I'm getting right well actually we you know we um, as a culture we essentially abdicated our responsibilities and kind of by faith by faith we gave over this uh, this food responsibility to others over you know several couple decades mm. and and so to where where we're at the point now in our country where we have twice as many people incarcerated in prisons as we have growing our food which is again a very aberrant uh, civilizational statistic it's the first time it's ever been done we are we are absolutely a uh, a, a guinea pig culture flirting with uh, abnormalities on a scale that no civilization has ever even thought of, and the fact is, you can't have, and you cannot have an integrity food system when you have the level of disengagement and lack of participation that we have in the culture. That the, you know, I I always tell people, they say, what can I do? You know, I say, look, I I wish I could snap my fingers and everything would be changed, and you could actually have an integrity food system and not have to take any responsibility yourself. But nothing is like that. If we're going to actually have uh, uh, responsible living, responsible anything, it's going to take participation on on a lot of people's part. I read a fascinating uh, statistic recently that the average American male, the average American male, 24 to 35 years old, spends 20 hours a week playing video games. You know, and 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 yet and yet, how many people say, oh, you know, I can't get in the kitchen, I can't cook, I can't you know locate good food, I can't visit farms. Uh, you know, how many soccer moms, uh, you know, complain about the price of the time and in getting involved with their food, but don't bat an eye at taking the six-year-old three hours to a soccer tournament and three hours back home 
eating fast food on you know on the way going oh, on yeah. the way home, and and yet don't have time or energy or money to get in touch with their food supply. I mean, it's it, it's all simply a manifestation of of what we value, and and as long as we uh, as long as we abdicate this responsibility. Um, you know, we're going to have the kind of food system and the ramifications that you describe. We're going to have those um, un- until until people decide to participate. And Joel, on that note, let's talk about labeling. How should consumers view labels, and what should consumers do beyond the label? Well, the whole labeling issue is is. Uh, it's it's a it's a monstrous thing, especially when you're a producer like we are. And uh, for example, you know these new rules have just come out about labeling and uh, a, a nutritional. And you know we've all, we've never claimed anything for our. We just say eggs, T-bone steak, uh, ground beef, you know, uh, pork chop. Uh, we don't we don't claim anything. But now you know we have to put these uh, uh, nutritional labels on, which of course. You know, would cost several hundred dollars per item, so we can't afford, as a small farm, we can't afford to put label nutrition labels on uh, that are that are accurate to what we produce. But the USDA says that's not a problem. You can just use the generic label. So we slap the generic label on, which is in many cases 300 to to even 500 percent off of our riboflavin or folic acid or uh, omega three, omega six ratios. I mean, the, the label now, our our label on our food that we have to put on by law, is as is as wrong as as night and day. Doesn't bear any semblance to the food that we produce. But the labeling laws, um, but but in or, in order to customize them so that they're actually accurate to our food, would you know would cost us thousands of dollars, which we don't have. And so. You know the, the whole thing is just—it's just a joke. Well, they're really and, uh, sticking it to the small farmers. They're making it so that either it's impossible to own and operate a small farm, or what the big picture is—they're looking to wipe you guys out. Well, you know, I—I I, um, yeah, I, there are a lot of people that yell conspiracy, and I—I I, I try not. If, as soon as you say conspiracy, you know, then you sound like a crazy person nobody listens to you. No, but we you know, we're not saying that. We're just saying, you know, these are the costs of uh, this is business. This is this is the cost of operations. Right. Point blank, plain and simple. This isn't any type of anything. This is <laughs> what is being forced upon a small business owner who owns and operates a farm. Period. Yeah, well basically yeah, I think I think the thing that, that your listeners need to understand is that, that just Generally speaking, food laws, whether they're mm-hmm. food safety laws, whether they're labeling laws, whether they are infrastructure laws, whatever the regulations, you know, zoning, whatever, uh, whatever those are, they are always prejudicial toward the biggest players and against the small players. The regulations are not scalable. Uh, they, they are they're scalable up very, very well. Um, but they don't scale down. And so what happens is every time we have a, a revamping of food safety laws, of, of, of the regulatory structure, you always see the small players get inordinate uh, punches on the chin because the regulations are not, are not scalable. 
and and that's what people need to understand. So that's one reason why I advocate food choice. Uh, you know, I think it's an amazing thing in our in our country now that we collectively believe that it is perfectly safe to feed your kids Twinkies, Cocoa Puffs, and Mountain Dew. But if you feed raw milk or compost-grown tomatoes or Aunt Matilda's uh, homemade pickles, <laughs> you know, those are hazardous substances. And um, it's certainly, it, it certainly um, you know, the, the, the health and, and sickness statistics certainly don't bear that out. And uh, and yet, yeah, that's that's where we've come to. Well, it's just kind of interesting. You point out in your book, people for the most part, as I described earlier in the segment, people just want to kind of go through life where okay, this is taken care of by somebody else. That's taken care of by somebody else. No responsibility for themselves. And that is basically what this is all about taking responsibility for yourself and it's just like with anything else if people choose to smoke certainly don't want them doing it around me they could go smoke themselves to death in the privacy of their own home as long as their air doesn't bother me i don't care what people do as long as it doesn't infringe upon my right to breathe free air free and clean clean air should i say but as you said the bottom line is people need to take responsibility so on that note how can we raise responsible children because i think Moving forward, people need to start teaching their kids what they need to look for and how they can become independent and make the choices because, for the most part, kids are at school for the majority of the day, or they should be in school for the majority of the day, and the parents are not there. They're, the majority of the day is spent at school with their peers, and they need to make choices, whether it's snack time or at lunch or if they have some type of a field trip, what have you, and they need to learn what choices to make. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, well, that's such a broad topic. I mean, of course, yeah, I'm an advocate of homeschooling, so anyway, there, there's always that option. Don't even send them, and then, then, then you don't <laughs> teach them to be peer dependent, and they, they begin to think for themselves, so, you know, we could go down that road, but mm-hmm. uh, beyond that, um you mentioned, you know, eating together communally in the home. Uh, I, I mean, ultimately, you cannot have you cannot have people taking responsibility for the visceral parts of their lives without putting attention on that in the home. Homes, you know, used to be the centerpiece of everything that was important in life, and now home has simply become a pit stop between everything everything that's important in life that happens outside. And um, you know, it, it, this is this is part of this crisis of participation uh, that we don't even participate in our family lives or in our home lives anymore. Uh, all of our participation is outside, and so we need we need to get we need to so eating together as a family, cooking together. I mean, um, in the book, I talk about, for example, all the learning possibilities. I mean, a kitchen can be almost a chemistry lab. Wow, look you know, look what heat does to that. Look what alcohol does to that. Look what, you know, a little bit of water does to that. And and uh, and then not, not only that, but you have fractions and cups and tablespoons and, and teaspoons and things like that. And um, and so it, it becomes, it can become a learning center. And then beyond that, um, take them out to a farm. I mean, again, people, people don't bat an eye at, uh, at Bambi and Thumper, you know, Disney vacations 
or Caribbean cruises or summer camps, uh, and, and that entails a lot of money and a lot of time, um, take, the, take the year off from that. Take that budget of time and, and, uh, and money that you would have normally spent recreationally like that and uh, go find your farm treasures, your food treasures in your community. Every community is surrounded by wonderful, wonderful um, ecologically-based uh, farms. And uh, go visit some. And what will happen then is that you will gradually build a, uh, an, informed, an informed platform from which you can make proper decisions. You will begin to learn. Well, you know that's that's good farming. That's bad farming. You'll be able to smell. That's good far good food. That's bad food. You'll begin to to see. That's good food. That's bad food. And and as you as you develop that uh, that experiential um, that experiential immersion in uh, in food from from farm all the way to table, obviously. The, you know, kids, more is caught than taught, and if we think something is important, kids usually think it's important too, and so, uh, and, and, then, and then once they start tasting it and seeing the difference, why, Katie, bar the door, you know, then, then they're really, they're ready for it. I mean, my, my grandchildren uh, won't even eat store-bought chicken. I mean, they, they, they this is, something's wrong with this. They, they can tell it. Uh, they're, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know they they won't even eat an egg from the store because uh, they can tell the difference, and and when we you know when we have that level of um, of of what you know involvement, we're we're gonna we're gonna create educated uh, kids. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna went, create kids that, that that get it. Yeah, I went through the same thing myself. I remember when I first moved to the city called up my father, and I said, Dad, can you bring me some eggs from the farm? And he said, well, don't they have eggs in the store? And I said, yes, they do. And he said, well, what's wrong with the eggs in the store? And I said, they're disgusting. The egg yolk has this pukey, pale yellow color. And I said, if I didn't know any better, I would think that there's they're giving something to the chickens because it's just not normal. So I think he just did it for his own amusement, just to make sure that I was paying attention all those years. It was just amazing the observations that you make when you look at all the things that are in the store that are not farm fresh and raised, especially the way that you do things on your farm. There's a significant difference once you are taught the knowledge, and especially children that possess that knowledge, they take that with them for the rest of their lives, and it does make a significant impact and affects how they not only live their lives, but their food choices and how they carry themselves throughout their life. Because if they have the respect for the land and if they have the respect for nature, that is going to really make a significant impact in their overall disposition throughout the rest of their lives. Yeah, this is one of the themes, as you notice uh, in, in the book, Folks, This Ain't Normal, that I, that I address, that... Uh, to me, I, I do a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking. I speak at a lot of colleges, and I, I'm I really am encouraged by the number of young people who who are ready to get down and dirty, uh, and I think that's great. But I'm also extremely uh, concerned about still, I would say, the majority that 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 um, think that we're going to be the most clever, 
technologically advanced, the, the smartest uh, civilization that's ever lived, to the point that we're going to be we're going to be so smart that we're going to be the first civilization that's going to um, sail off into some Star Trek future, <laughs> uh, you know, eating a, a breakfast pill, and that, that we won't have to bother our cerebrally enhanced uh, brains with visceral thoughts of soil, air, water, um, you know, how chickens are raised and how milk is produced and what tomatoes grow in, that we can extricate ourselves from all that. And, and, and that's, a, you know, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. We've, we've already tried for, you know, arguably two generations to, um, to just to abdicate our responsibility and put our faith in multinational corporations and processing facilities and Taco Bell, McDonald's, and Monsanto, and Sibagagi, and everybody else. And we've, we've put our faith in that, and look, what, look where it's gotten us. Um, it's gotten us, you know, um, n- number one uh, chronic disease uh, uh, culture in the world, and you know, an, uh, an arguable epidemic in you know obesity, type two diabetes, and everything else. And um, not to and mention the pollution. Putting, putting yeah. faith, putting faith in those outfits has not uh, not given us what we needed. Well, I think, Joel, the problem with that mentality is that, unfortunately, there are people like that. I'm sure that you and I could probably spend hours just talking about tomatoes, as you'd mentioned earlier in the segment, and have a grand old time. But there are a lot of people that just don't see what the big deal is. And what I've found is that when they do start to pay attention is usually when they have either a personal health crisis or someone that they love or care for has a health crisis. Then the light bulb goes off and then they start paying attention. And that's when they start paying attention to not only where is the food grown, how is it grown, but who is growing it and what methods are they using to grow it. You know, that is such a great observation because one of the things that I enjoy uh, enjoy doing when I'm out talking uh Make, doing my performances and stuff, and people come up and talk to me after. I love to listen to a person tell me their their epiphany story. <laughs> you know, um, because really, where you and I are, where anybody is, is is again a, a, a culmination of our epiphanies, our our aha moments, if you will. And and it's always amazing to me to hear those. What was that aha moment? That 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 final drip, you know, on your head. Um, <laughs> and and uh, you know, I, for example, I you know, a farmer once told me, uh, a produce farmer, he said his epiphany was when he when he was walking out through the field one day. He want and he wanted to eat a carrot, but he knew he didn't dare until he uh, put chlorine on it. He said that was my that was my aha moment. I said, what am I? You know, I'm spraying all these herbicides and chemicals and all that. You know, what am I doing? And and you're exactly right. For many, many people, it is a you know it is an epiphany of of health crisis. I will tell you this too, um, because I've been in this a long, long time and come from a fairly you know conservative uh, social background. Um, that that it used to be uh, 30 years ago when I was you know young here, starting on uh, doing the farm that we'd start having visitors and stuff and 
you know, most of them, I would say, you know, 80% were essentially, you know, environmental type, tree hugger, you know, cosmic, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and now, today, I would say that a healthy 50% of the visitors who come to our farm or, or, or take our seminars or whatever are actually conservative homeschoolers who who opted out of the institutional education system found it soul satisfying and said well good grief uh, what else have I been missing and and you know the whole idea to opt out of the mainstream thinking whether it's investment education recreation food medical you know uh, what happens is there's one drip you know maybe for some people it is it is they they bit the bullet and went to a chiropractor instead of for example a medical doctor and 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 then maybe the next thing you know they're going to a homeopath and what you know what happens is when a person opts out of the of the conventional thinking and finds it uh, beneficial, well then then they're 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 screaming to find other things. Next thing you know you know they're 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 buying alternative investment newsletters. They're listening to you know podcasts of a you know crazy you know organic view person and they're <laughs> next thing you know they got a you know they got a grain mill in their kitchen and they're and they're grinding grain or they've got a sprout jar and they're sprouting compost bin <laughs> these these things these things domino as you know you, they domino because why well, you know your body starts feeling good and you and and, uh, and you just see those kinds of positive changes and the fact is that that positive changes really that you can taste and get a hold of, positive changes are absolutely, uh, um, they're, they're, they're magnetic, and they attract you then to take the next step in whatever else might be a positive change. Now, on that note, Joel, what things do you think would help get this country back to the path of normalcy? Well... Oh, what I know help? that's a loaded question. It is a loaded question. You know, I, I don't know what it'll take. I mean, a lot of us, a lot of us of my, you know, in my uh, cohorts, um, we, we think perhaps one of the biggest tipping points is going to be energy costs, because essentially our food system, including the the, the average transport of America's food, which is fifteen hundred miles on average per morsel. That, that actually, um, that if energy doesn't continue to escalate, and we do have, you know, if there is such a thing as peak oil, and you know, I don't want to get in a big debate about that, but, but if, if energy does escalate, if, if uh, you know, if fuel doubles yet again to, you know, $7, $8 a gallon, um, that, that will precipitate the kind of cultural, you know, aha, because suddenly we'll realize, you know, you can't ship, you simply can't ship um, 98% water mescaline mix from California to New York City in January sustainably. I mean, you just you just can't. Um, you know, historically, the only thing that could be shipped in food were spices, coffee, tea, and and extremely nutrient dense things like like dried beef or dried fruit or um, or, or you know, aged aged cheeses, those kinds of things. Yeah, things that were more shelf stable, of course. Yeah, sh- shelf stable and and very valuable per pound, uh, or you know, or what I call nutrient dense per pound. And 
you know, when people, when David, when uh, Daniel Boone headed out through Kentucky, you know, he didn't have a bunch of squashes and watermelons and tomatoes tied on his saddlebags. You know, he took he took uh, jerky and dried things and you know fruit leather and things like that. So, uh, uh, you know, you, you so you simply an energy crisis would absolutely precipitate uh, the kind of change that we're talking about because. Our food system right now, our fertility, our fertility program, our whole food system floats on oil. Fertilizers made, it uses copious amounts of energy to be made. The Faber-Bosch uh, method to get nitrogen out of the atmosphere, it all runs on natural gas and, 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 and energy. And uh, and so as soon as that happens, you'll see you would ha- you would see people start to recycle carbon on site. We wouldn't be taking, uh, we wouldn't be filling our landfills. 70 to 80 percent of everything that goes in our landfills is decomposable. Um, you know that's that's a, that's unconscionable. It's immoral. That should be composted. It, the food the food waste, which is about 30 percent of it, the food waste should be fed to chickens and pigs like it was, you know, uh, in normalcy. And we'll be, we, you know, we would see chicken houses pushed up against uh, dining common services. We'd see, we'd see chickens, chickens, uh, two chickens in a house instead of a parakeet cage, a dog in an aquarium, you know. And 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 we would start integrating. We would re-embed and reinsert the food system close by, in and around, and where we live. Well, and just the beauty of that is yeah. that as soon as you start surrounding yourself. Not not even not just mentally, but surrounding yourself physically with mm-hmm. food, you know, edible landscaping mm-hmm. and and, and uh, honeybees on rooftops and and patio gardens and things like that. Suddenly, there's this wonderful uh, um, emotional spiritual uh, balm um, of being of of a sense of being nested in abundance. And in a time when uh, many of us think that we're in a, a, a precarious uh precipice to be to be nestled in in and to look to be able to look out and see abundance is big that's one of the reasons why i'm i'm big on restoring the domestic larder you know we don't even use the word larder anymore uh but but you know in our house we we, we could pull the plug on society we could eat for a year and i'm no i don't mean eat a bunch of you know, uh, vac, whatever dried stuff from one of these survivalist companies. I mean, our own canned goods, our own, um, you know, garden and vegetables and canned applesauce and, and things. Yeah, and and you would be you would remain healthy. And yeah. it's interesting how many companies are pushing out these products that are survival foods that have a shelf life of like 20 years. And it's like you really want to eat something that's 20 years old. And I certainly don't. What I have also observed is that there are a lot of foods that we do not recognize as edible because of the fact that the clever marketers have basically told us, no, this is a weed. The dandelion is the enemy. You must eradicate it from the lawn, from your home environment. And I remember doing a very successful lecture on dandelions. And it was very interesting in my research. One of the plants that provided some sustainable nutrition to people who had survived the Holocaust was the dandelion. Imagine if there were no dandelions available during the Holocaust when there was no food, there was no nothing. Right, right, that's right. There are are so many things that we just dismiss offhand because... 
it doesn't come in a vacuum sealed package with a SKU number. Exactly. Uh, and, and it didn't get beeped across a barcode reader from a cash register. It's it's crazy. And so 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 ener- you know energy could be a catalyst. I, I don't know, but but that's possible. Another catalyst, obviously, could be some major pathogenicity. That could be one. Certainly one of the catalysts that's happening right now is just the, the, the health care crisis. I mean, I, um, I don't want to get in debate again about the health care and public and private and all that, but I will tell you that the countries that the, countries that the U.S. is trying to model its health care plan from are decidedly healthier per capita than the U.S. And one of the reasons that the you know the government approach in the U.S. and one of the reasons healthcare is such a big problem in the U.S. today is because we are such an unhealthy culture. And well, it's not, it's not just the food, but it's the environment. I mean, the amount of chemicals that are being dumped into the land, and the stuff that's being dumped into the air. I mean, it's everywhere. It is ubiquitous, and that's why the more people, rather, that start to pay attention to where their food is coming from, who's growing it, how it's being grown, not just shoving it in their wagon or their basket and saying, oh, this is what I need, that's it. But the more that they pay attention, the more that they're going to understand what is involved with that process. And the thing is, is that that would also matter as far as the types of chemicals that are being used to grow those types of foods. Well, yeah, you have to understand that every time, every time, Food gets, or maybe not every time, but basically when food gets processed, the, the when you take when you take um, the ingredients in DiGiorno's frozen pizza, for example, frozen microwavable pizza, that pizza becomes a totally different critter than the raw ingredients that went into it, and that's true for you know practically everything from chicken nuggets to uh, you know to to, to whatever and to, to cheerios i mean i remember well as a as a young year decades ago i remember reading about um you know wheaties and that you could take um you could take wheaties and feed rats and they would die but if you if you took the raw ingredients that were listed on the label and fed rats they were perfectly healthy that's and scary so, the the fact is that there are a lot of things that are done to foods. I mean, take Velveeta cheese. You know, um, cheese, can I leave it? Do I have to take it? <laughs> cheese cheese that squirts out of a tube. You know, folks, this ain't normal. I mean, uh, and 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 food that won't rot. I have a whole chapter in the book about food. Good food should rot. Uh, it, you know, if you take if you take Velveeta cheese and set it on your table and then go down and get some real cheese from somebody, well, in 24 hours the real cheese will have a little bit of mold on it. Uh, I don't know how long Velveeta will sit there with no mold, but it's you know it's 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 years. And and well, so the key word on the package done by the processors <laughs> is done to stabilize, to stabilize and create shelf life mm. of food. And the fact is that living food, living food spoils. Uh, precisely because it is alive. And, well, just and like we are food, alive, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're alive, and when 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 food won't spoil, um, how can something that's lifeless give us life? I ran into two uh, ladies out in California that that are doing a, a farm to farm to uh, school project there. They've got a three acre farm attached to the school, and the kids come out and hmm. they've incorporated this into their 
the environmental sciences and biology program and all that. And one of the first things they do is uh, they have a great big earthworm bed. They do a, a large-scale vermicomposting there with a big earthworm bed, and these grade school kids come out and um, they and and the teach the the people running the farm. They take a a a, a, a loaf of Wonder Bread and they you know ball it up and they put it down in the in the verm in the earthworms, and then they take a you know some artisanal home ground you know fresh bread and they ball it up and they put it in. And then when the kids come back the next week, they open the top and they look in there, and the Wonder Bread ball is still, you know, unscathed. It's sitting there, <laughs> and the other the other bread is completely consumed by the earthworms. And then and so the teachers then look at the kids and say, why would you want to eat something worms won't even eat? And they may be blind, but they know what's not food. That's for sure. That's for sure. And, and I think those are really powerful you know, powerful uh, um, lessons that, that Well, if you can't compost it, I mean, right there, that's a problem. Something that is not compostable, why would you want to eat it? And what's that's interesting, right. if, if you look at the foods, and I know you homeschooled your kids, but if you look at the foods that are served to children in America in the cafeterias, hot dogs, I remember doing a research paper in graduate school on hot dogs, and my teacher was really slick. I think she knew what I, I think she knew exactly what she was trying to do. Now that I look back, and this is before you had all sorts of information available. I actually had to pick up the phone and make phone calls and go to a place called the library, try to get research done. You know, you mean you couldn't best. Google it? <laughs> no, Google wasn't invented. Wow. How did we survive before Google? I don't know. I guess, you know, also we had two cups and a string, you know, for a phone, stuff like that. (laughs) But uh, the thing is, is that what I learned, it was interesting. Hot dogs used to be my favorite food, and that was basically the assignment. Pick a food that you love, research it, and report about it. It was interesting. I would not touch hot dogs after that. Actually, at this point, I don't eat meat. That's a whole other subject, but I... Uh, gosh, but hot dogs, that was the first to go. And what is amazing is that hot dogs are served to so many kids in the schools, in restaurant chains, all over the place, and they are just vile. It's amazing what goes into them, and people eat them. They're just like, ooh, yummy. These are great. If only they knew how the food, how the hot dogs were produced, what was in them, and the whole nine yards, I think people would think twice. Yep. Well, we, you know, here at Polyface, we make we make a hot dog, but we make it out of, you know, boneless pork, boneless beef. I mean, it's it's the real deal. And and you can you can actually tell, and you can actually tell the difference. I mean, it's a it's a huge difference. You can actually tell you're eating food. You're not eating some sort of amalgamated, reconstituted, uh, glued together, adulterated fecal uh, <laughs> stuff. That has a certain percentage of what is it? Rat feces and right. God knows what else permitted only because they can't prevent it. Yeah, really, really great excuse. And this is why we, as a society, are strictly dependent upon these labels. Because why again? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, the labels don't tell you how much rat feces is in there. No. It goes back to what you were saying, especially you may you later mentioned towards the end of the book about the Weston Price Foundation and its shopping guide. 
Can you just briefly talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, probably, you know, there are a few things that have done more to really get people stirred up and excited about food than the Weston A. Price Foundation, which is based on the work of uh, Weston A. Price, who was a dentist and traveled the world and uh, back in the 1930s looking for societies that had longevity and no uh, chronic diseases. And, of course, in every case, these were societies that had not yet interfaced with, you know, Western industrial food. And this organization has chapters around the world, around the country, and uh, they have a shopping guide that they've put out. I'm looking at the 2012 shopping guide. Um, and, you know, it, it's, uh, it's indexed by, you know, by farm, by entity, uh, from, you know, good, better, best. And, um, and it's, just a, you know, it's just a great guide for finding, you know, for finding good food. The fact is that there is a lot of good food out here and um, a lot of struggling farmers that are, you know, uh, desperate for, um, you know, for patronage. And what we need is, you know, we, I say we as a culture, we need to quit nibbling around the edges or buying just enough, uh, uh, buying just enough to, for a guilt assuagement. And I would suggest even um, we need to quit buying industrial organic. And what we need to do is... Um, is get out here on these farms and find out about pastured livestock, about compost-grown tomatoes, about, um, you know, uh, really walking the land, seeing it. And um, to me, that has to be at least as important to do a couple times a year as to run up and down a soccer field half a dozen times. Yeah, and I think it's very important for people to understand why the food tastes better if it comes from a farm such as yours where you're really going back to nature. I, I think when you're so far removed, and especially many people that have never seen a farm, they've never had raw milk, it's amazing when people say, how can you drink raw milk? Hey, I grew up on raw milk. I never got sick. When you look at the way that we have evolved as a society, and how people, they were perfectly healthy before all these different things came about that started really micromanaging the farms, such as well, some, you know, some of the too, things that you, you I mentioned. I think um, in, in my, my favorite part of the book, actually, of, of the book Folks This Ain't Normal, my favorite part of it is um, I go into this historical context of why milk was, uh, un, unclean and unhealthy for a while, or raw, raw milk, and, and the whole basis of pasteurization. And in a nutshell, it took place in at the you know from about 1870 to 1930 um, during that period of our of our country's history when we were urbanizing. We were pulling people off the farm. The begin the early part of the industrial revolution and the and the the industrial economy as we moved away from the um, from the agrarian economy and. Mm -hmm. And the cities were growing faster than the knowledge of hygiene, sanitation, and the infrastructure for sewers, indoor plumbing, electricity, stainless steel, refrigeration, and all of those things. And what mm -hmm. happened was the breweries then, the breweries, which you know we didn't have refrigeration in, located right in the urban sector, they generated huge amounts of distiller's grains. Well, a dairy was a natural was a natural uh, uh, thing to feed the distiller's grains to the cows. And, of course, 
also compatible from a distribution and a lack of refrigeration thing. So, so we began bringing the, the, the uh, commercial dairies into the urban sector, feeding the cows these dis- distillers' grains, which gave them acidosis and was a transfer was a was a growing medium for you know uh, uh, brucellosis and undulant fever and and all these kinds of things, and. And, and that passed through the milk. And I mean, the, the pictures of these urban <laughs> these urban dairies are just uh, unbelievable. The manure. The, I mean, we were still remember this was a time when doctors were still debating uh, each other whether or not they should um, uh, sterilize their scalpels between amputations. And so uh, it was it was a real time in in a very short period of time. And today, now we have all the knowledge and the infrastructure and the ability to not have all those issues, and uh, so there's no reason why we can't go back to to the pre-1870 period when we were an agrarian society and nobody was having these sicknesses. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I think that at this particular point, we definitely need to look at where where we have come and where we have been and go back to some of the basic things that we've really kind of run from in order to become more modern and recognize that, you know, some of these things were actually good things. It's just this need to become more modernized. Nobody wants to go back to living in, in a cave. That's yeah. I, I certainly don't. But some of the things, the re- there's a reason why they worked for so long, and I think that is something that more and more people are really starting to go back to. So it's very important that people, as you've mentioned, start paying attention to not only what they're buying, but how the food is grown and who's actually growing it. And the local farmers, we need to really start paying attention to the local farmers who are going above and beyond, who are doing so much for us, instead of just saying, oh, you know what, let's buy something that's imported and go back to the way that things were as far as the way that our food was produced and really support the efforts of those that are underpaid, overworked, and for the most part, not even recognized. Great. I agree. (laughs) Joel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you give our audience your website? And also, do you have any upcoming book signings or tours that you're going to be doing? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would just move people to our website, polyfacefarms.com. You can just Google polyface, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, the farm of many faces. And um, and my speaking schedule is on there, my travel schedule where I'll be doing book signings and, and, le- and performances and things, and uh, would and you can just keep up with my uh, my comings and goings and and hither skelters uh, helter skelter uh, there on that on that website. It's polyfacefarms.com. Thank you so much. And if you have the opportunity, get a copy. Whether you order it online, take it out in the local library, do whatever you have to do. Download it to your Kindle, but get a copy of Joel Saladin's latest book, folks. This ain't normal. Great book. A lot of information there. It was actually very enjoyable to read it, but I do say so myself. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.